substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200 Media and Politics Podcast We're back for another week of current events Pretty focused episode today a lot of the noise that's been happening in the political space has been bluster, but there have been a couple of big things, which once again are going under the radar to a large extent. They seem to be considered as par for the course, as opposed to things that present any real risk, but we think that they should be interrogated a little bit more. For that purpose, I'm joined by my co-host, Josephine. How are you doing, Josephine? Kia ora, everyone. I'm doing well. Uh, how are you, Kyle? I am, I think I've had too much coffee this morning already, <laughs> uh, but I'm doing okay. Uh, and we're also joined by special guest, Adam Arata. Welcome. Kia ora, welcome. Uh, thanks for welcoming me, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, How I'm trying doing? to read the background documents quickly while we... Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, are you sure you haven't been on here before? <laughs> oh, no, long time uh, listener, first time caller. Is that what I'm supposed to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, all good, all good. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I have followed, uh, especially your work around, you know, uh, the foreign policy issues. Um, uh, recently, I saw your talk with uh, Fabian Society. Um, yeah, uh, about China and the perception of China in Aotearoa and how there is, you know, uh, manufacturing of consent. Um, yeah, to be uh, hostile uh, towards China. So good stuff. Really, really happy to have you on. Oh, thank you. And just for our audience, Arama, um, can you give us a little bit of a, a rundown of uh, who you are, where you're from? Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, oh, tēnā tātou, heuri tēnei no Manepoto, no Taranaki, no Ngāruihine. Um, I'm Arama from um, Taranaki. I'm living in Hamilton at the moment. I'm an independent researcher, so I've broken free of the institutional chains. Um, yeah, and I work on a bunch of different um, <laughs> research projects, mostly around racism, um, some data stuff as well. And um, yeah, I guess I'm here kind of in my capacity as co-director of Te Kuaka, which is a like progressive um, foreign policy group that really pushes for uh, New Zealanders to be more involved with shaping our foreign policy. Hey, Aruma, guess what? Um, in 2021, I was very closely involved with Tekuaka hey. around the people's vaccine issue. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm very you know familiar with a lot of people within uh, Tekuaka, and I'm so glad that One of 200 has given me the opportunity to meet you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that was a really important um, campaign. Uh, still, yeah. still a big issue. Uh, still vaccine. is. Yeah. Exactly. It's an ongoing issue. Um, around, you know, the ethics of health mm. research and the accessibility to medicines globally. Is is medicine and health research supposed to create profits or is it there to alleviate suffering? So this is an ongoing debate. We will have to fight, you know, um, if we want people across the world to have well-being and health. And that, that kind of stuff is just continuing in every sphere at the moment. Um, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is around that uh, heavy, uh, air quotes, independent foreign policy in regards to the direction that uh, Labour seems to be moving in. A lot of discussion around uh, what is now called the Indo-Pacific um, and uh, AUKUS AUKUS uh, Pillar 2 uh, that's been in the news a little bit today um, and over the last week, uh, you know, also mentioned perceptions of China that's been in the in the political news a bit this week as well. 
Uh, and it's always incredibly frustrating to see the way that it gets pitched, uh, both by politicians and the way the media covers it, and then the way that uh, political outriders and fandoms uh, just turn immediately to racism. And you can see it coming a mile off, uh, but it happens every time. And, yeah, it really feels like we need to to grow up a little bit um, in some of these spaces. But before we kick into the serious stuff around um, international relations, I want to talk about a bit of the stuff that's happening in local policy uh, discussions with Te Pāti Māori uh, this week announcing their idea, their um, set of policies and legislative uh, thoughts uh, for a Mokapuna Māori uh, authority, which just seems like a fantastic idea given, you know, the last forever um, of, you know, sifts into Oranga Tamariki um, and the continual... I, I don't even know what the words are to describe what that organisation um, has been doing to the, the children of Aotearoa um, and especially Māori children. Yeah, I think it's really important for the uh, listeners to um, go to the Māori Party website and then read what they've written about this uh, Mokopuna Māori uh, policy, which is basically a policy that, um, you know, intends to ban uh, the upliftment of Māori children from their afano uh, and to have an alternative system. Um, it, it traces the history of upliftment of children um, uh in, in Aotearoa and how it's closely associated with the colonial policy of, you know, demaurification or, you know, westernizing uh, Maori uh, tamariki. And this is a, you know, this is a history that's not unique of New Zealand. It's, it's, you see similar patterns in Canada, in Australia, in the United States, where children are taken from their, uh, their funnel and uh, put in state care and you know what what impacts that that has is well known and recorded by now we have a you know state care to prison pipeline um, as well as a, a state care to gang pipeline so it has been a broken system yet it continues to this day so what are you know what can we do to deal with this issue? Uh, I think Maori Party is suggesting, you know, uh, some interesting policy solutions there. I think that, you know, we need a comprehensive uh, suite of policies to alleviate the issues, uh, you know, uh, resulting from colonization, uh, including, you know, uh, alleviating poverty and assuring material security of our uh, of our whānau in New Zealand. So, um What's your, have you thought, have you got any thoughts about it, Arama? Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you make the comparisons there with um, Canada and Australia and the US. Uh, it was quite chilling. I came across one time in the um, appendices to the Journal of the House of Representatives, this line about um, uh, when uh, decision makers here were, were trying to decide whether or not to have residential schools here, um, they, they, ended up deciding that no we shouldn't um not because they're ineffective just because the cost was too great you know so at that time <laughs> yeah they, they thought that Gosh. it was a really yeah really good idea at, at that time but um so you know in a sense we were um in some ways 
lucky to have avoided that particular um, strategy. Uh, but yeah, that ne- nevertheless, we've still seen um, this used and, and schooling in general. Um, but uh, certainly the theft of our children, um, the erasure of their mildiness is just one of many tools used to try to eliminate natives, basically. Um, yeah, really interesting research out, out as well, um, based on interviews with people who had been adopted out of their whanau. And, um, you know, this really common trope where families um, are asked to pretend their child is Spanish um, so that they might have... Um, you know, be, be perceived better by a by a very racist society. So, um, yeah, just the the racism inherent in that system is so clear. Where you have like babies who are taken from their families and then kind of put in a hierarchy based on their skin color and adopted out to white families, um, adopted out to white families who are told to say they're Spanish, and then finally, um, you know, the darker, browner uh, children who um, are often put in the worst types of homes, and so. Um, yeah, any any attempt to end that system um, is something that I think we should be getting behind. One of the things, um, the the immediate response from from Labour, um, and it's Calvin Davis, was to to say, "Oh, we shouldn't have another layer of bureaucracy, so this idea could never work." And it's just it's such a nasty hand wave um, to just fail to engage with. I mean, he knows he knows about the failures, you know. Um, I, I guess it's a similar kind of thing to, oh, it would cost too much, you know, to do this. And, yeah, I, I hope to see a, a fair amount of coverage of this because it's not, the Pate Māori are talking specifically about uh, Māori whānau um, and, and uh, tamariki, but the whole system is is broken for everyone. You know, this isn't, the system's not, <laughs> not good for Pākehā either. Um, yeah, it needs a shake-up. It needs to be. I mean, it should be abolished as as a system in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's a lot like the debate around prisons. Eh? It's like um, yeah. we we wouldn't want Māori to receive funding to run prisons as they currently are at all. Um, we need to abolish those and yeah. and come up with a different system. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what the policy is also saying that they want to mm. abolish it as well. Um, but the other part of it is oftentimes we take these policies in isolation and, you know, and so one of these policies, uh, trying to implement it in isolation without the host of other decolonial policies we require, you know, might leave it to be less effective than it's intended to. So um, I think that we need to also pay attention to the, you know, the holistic the whole package of programs as well um, that would lead to a better, uh, you know, outcomes for Tamari Maori in Aotearoa. Yeah, and this is just a one of the the hallmarks of this election campaign so far. The minor parties are just coming out with some incredible policy, and it's so well thought out. There are so many good details. There's so much clear thinking around the direction that they want uh, this country and and the systems they govern this country to move in. While the centre, uh, Labour and National, just fucking sit there like everyone just needs it's still just stunning to me how little coverage there is of like the extensive policy work being done around the center um and especially uh from te pate maori and the greens so far i think the act party is also doing a lot of policy work it's just horrific and just (laughs) a nasty shit and and it's not getting much coverage either but 
Hey. You know, ultimately, Kyle, the question is, can we get any of these policies into, you know, fruition through our parliamentary system, which is rooted in capitalism and at the moment rooted in neoliberal capitalism and market-based solutions, um, where, you know, the centrist parties are shepherding uh, the other parties in, in instead of, you know, the outlying parties using yeah. their power to pull them to the side, you know, to their side, to leverage their power to say, hey, for example, Green Party should be saying, we're not going to you know, join you in a coalition unless you do these policies. Yeah. They don't, they're not doing that. So it's like... It's kind of like you, a good cop, bad cop routine in a way, you is, know, like uh, suggesting all of these um, progressive changes and then um, just, yeah. Nothing happens. Yeah, the rhetoric has been shifting a little bit. Um, so I think for the first time... Uh, James Shaw has been extensively on record saying that the Greens would sit on the crossbenches um, in certain situations, which is good to see, not as heavy as I'd like it to be. I think Te Pāti Māori probably has a bit more backbone around this stuff. But yeah, it's going to come into the campaign proper. We'll wait to see what, what Labour actually campaign on, if they even do, and take it from there. But let's move on to the the main course, um, and that's in the international relations sphere. Been a couple of big things this week. Uh, the first one has been the re-emergence uh, of this horrific uh, policy that was, um, I think, started going through into last year, um, early this year, about asylum seekers. Uh, so this initially started coming in under Michael Wood, who is who is now not uh, <laughs> in this role for reasons, uh, and it's about asylum seeker detainment. It's it's such a strange. I, this is one of those signals that you look at and you say, why, why is this being created as policy? And you can intuit that it's because this government, despite the fact that they are just nowhere to be seen on any climate crisis uh, policy, they're, they're like it's being actively ignored by the media, by Labour, by National, they're just not talking about it all. But you see bills like this, um, this is like it's it's called the mass arrivals bill. Um, it's it's the kind of shorthand for it, and you immediately know that the Labour government understands the the threat of climate change. They understand the risks involved. They understand the extent to which this is going to impact us. They're just making fascistic policy around it um, and pushing it through under the the guise of defence um, and security, while refusing to do anything in the front end at all. Um, refusing to do any mitigation um, or response to the sharp end of uh, climate change. And instead, they're proposing this bill, which would increase the detainment uh, time period um, from four to 28 days. So from four days to, a, to an entire month. And that's like without charge. This is just like put them in a camp kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think this ties in very well with New Zealand's uh, recent rhetoric around aligning with like-minded countries, which means... <laughs> aligning... We have shared values. We're going to throw up on cast first time ever. Exactly. The shared values between New Zealand and the most aggressive, you know, uh, violators of uh, the ru so-called rules-based international order, right? The United States and Europe uh, and other Anglo-European countries. Um, 
if you think about what has been happening to refugees and asylum seekers in the last couple of months hundreds of them have perished in their you know uh, in their migration process trying to get uh, to the coasts of europe and you know it it it, uh, it always sends me the question like why have these people moved uh, last month in now it's a couple of months ago so in june um 72 asylum seekers died uh, off the coast of greece and you know a majority of them were from afghanistan and from the border regions of pakistan and afghanistan and just to think about the you know the root causes for the conflict there including the west's you know um role in in um funding setting up and arming the taliban and and how that has resulted in a lot of the problems we see today and taking no responsibility for the impacts of their geopolitical decisions so it's i think it's a you know it's it's in that la- in the same line that new zealand is taking and the labor party in fact is taking this policy of increasing the detention uh, period uh, for asylum seekers and refugees un- of, to 28 days so i mean these are the shared values that we mm-hmm. we are you know upholding it seems to up, you know new zealand seem to be up, upholding in new zealand's foreign policy so yeah it's not surprising for me but it it is abhorrent yeah if you look at what what that shared value is it's white supremacy i think exactly um yeah it's uh, as you mentioned so many people dying um trying to reach safety and i think there were there was a ship carrying about 400 people or so <clears throat> um that sank in the mediterranean around the same time as the five billionaires who yeah. lost their lives in in that submersible and and yet the media coverage uh obviously was just really skewed towards the caring about the lives of five rich uh rich people yeah so this w- what we're talking about eh, is this core anglosphere that um tina nutter uh talks about um that's kind of centered around these um i think she she outlined three areas where there's just um key collaboration and those were um borders militarism and intelligence um and so you know part of the reason why um new zealand is so aggressive on this despite having very few people trying to seek asylum in new zealand is um to to be in in lockstep with with those other anglo nations um and you know our passport regime is um yeah really quite sickening and if you look at the way that the the pacific is divided up um it's like having a border wall as a uh, andre velchek writes about um the pacific as 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 there being border walls throughout it all and so if you want to you know move from one little island to a cl- a nearby island you have to fly through new zealand or through australia or through the us and pass their border and visa um requirements um yeah so it's it's quite a sick system and it's becoming more and more militarized which is something we should be doing everything we can to avoid and including um setting up camps for for asylum seekers yeah i i mean this is one of the more just bizarre things about this i don't think we've ever had a mass arrival in in new zealand no no one really tries to get here uh we are isolated enough for that to kind of put people off uh but if this is going to happen in the future it would be from the pacific you know this area that successive governments just lean on so heavily in their rhetoric to, like as as being our um our partners as people that were um as countries that were meant to be there supporting uh who who do you think this is going to impact the most and this is where it comes into that climate stuff like they know <laughs> you know they they know who and why 
people are going to be trying to get to Aotearoa. Um, and and instead of investing in and averting those crises, yeah. we just ramp up our militarism and police state. Uh, and, you know, like basically every human rights organization has come out against this policy and, and is trying to get the government uh, to, to back down on it. Uh, the Greens have, have been pretty strong on it as well. Even National is like opposing this. It might be for more political reasons, but... Probably costs too much. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of um, across the board support for getting rid of this this policy. But, you know, the Labour government uh, is, is happy to forge ahead with it. I don't know what this looks like after the election. I, I think, you know, if, if National win, they'll probably just stick around with it anyway. I, I think the new rhetoric they're using now will kind of go out the window as they tap into those security frameworks themselves um, as, as the New Zealand government. But yeah, it's not a good, it's not, it's not a good sign that we are looking to set up this security framework against the most vulnerable people on the planet alongside uh, some of the other shifts in this thinking um, internationally. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of leads into the, you know, the, the next topic, which is about the three documents released by the government mm-hmm. eh, um, just yesterday. So there's uh, the New Zealand security strategy, uh, along with the military focused defense policy, as well as a strategy statement. Um, and a th- yeah. And the third document is the future force design principles uh, for New, New Zealand defense. And so this, uh, all these policy releases amounted uh, up to 82 pages and 12,000 words. And, you know, I had a look at some of the documents and what really surprised me is the how many Maori terms and they have been using oh, throughout the statement of militarization and of the continuation of neo-colonial foreign policy throughout the globe of of you know, teaming up with the foremost neo-colonial powers who still continue, you know, to control the economic policies of a lot of global South countries. For example, what France has been doing in 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 Mali, they've been, you know, and they've they're, they're still stationed in a lot of their former colonies. These countries that we are aligning with, whether it's you know New Zealand's going closer to NATO or New Zealand's uh, current trajectory, uh, which is to join AUKUS, New Zealand is not doing anything decolonial. There's nothing decolonial about this defense policy that they've put out. And this is a, a case of clear appropriation, shameless appropriation of uh, of Tereo in order to, you know, further, um, you know, European and Anglo colonial capitalist system globally. We've been referring to this as like brownwashed foreign policy, which we're seeing a lot of. Um, and and as well as all of these uh, references to Māori values, um, there's also a lot of rhetoric around our Pacific family, you know, like talking about... Yeah, that's about what I was talking pre- about before. Yeah, protecting like, our Pacific family. Yeah, protecting and- them by, like, detaining them for a whole month when they arrive mm-hmm. on the back of a climate emergency. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's really condescending. It's... it. it and we're seeing this all over the world, actually, um, as as nations become 
you know, independent nations are able to finally start choosing who to ally th- themselves with. There's a lot of of condescending rhetoric around, um, oh, they should be independent, but um, some other nations don't have their best interests at heart. You know, the malign <laughs> influence of, of other yeah. nations. And so, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of brownwashing and a lot of patronizing language um, towards the Pacific in it. Um, did you did you see that um, image, the map where it shows um, the New Zealand's <laughs> it, it has a, a like, sphere of influence or something. Is it's it? called the New Zealand region, I think. Um, <laughs> or the New Zealand, yeah, I think it's the New Zealand region. So you've got the New Zealand, yeah. You've got the Pacific, a little bubble that kind of sits around that. And then this much broader bubble that kind of extends all the way to East Asia almost and, and towards Hawaii. And that's called the New Zealand region. And it's yeah. like, since when does the defense of New Zealand extend to Hawaii and East Asia? And and so this is like just a very, very clear setting up of, of our decision makers, actually, because that's who these kind of documents are aimed at, is... Yeah, to, to have them think less about defending our shores and more about projecting power into these other areas where our so-called ally uh, and the US are trying to drag us into conflicts in those areas. So we, we need to like just resist that. Um, yeah, our, our defence strategy should be about the defence of New Zealand. Um, not There's a lot of rhetoric around our international interests. So now we have all of these international interests everywhere. It's kind oh, of it's like very trade with China. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, the thing. It's so yeah, it's so incoherent. Not even in our interest to to for tension to escalate in those areas. Yeah, it's so frustrating as we see yeah. this kind of. Uh, I'm not even sure, like strategic creep yeah and you know the surveillance stuff even goes it goes even wider than that uh yep. because it's it's internationalist it's not just this this ocean area uh that that new zealand is often given an outsized perception of influence within mm-hmm. but yeah, how, how do you think like that disjunct between pacific family um and this increasing far from home strategic sphere uh, can be brought into one clear strategic uh, model because I just oh, they're, they're completely incompatible. Absolutely, yep, yep. You know the documents that we that we've seen. Um, you know, say things like, "Oh, you know, we welcome greater influence of the UK in the Pacific," and it's like, no, we don't. Like, we're a member of the Pacific Islands Forum, and and we've got commitments there to be Pacific led in our thinking, and yet we're just forging and strengthening these Anglo alliances. Um, and it's not what the Pacific wants. We don't. The Pacific doesn't want uh, nuclear propelled and potentially armed. Um, submarines cruising around that area. Um, yeah, it's it's an absolute betrayal of the Pacific. And it's, you know, it's setting up the Pacific as a staging ground for war. And as my um, my colleague, Marco Diong, always um, reminds us, it's it's treating the people of the Pacific as collateral. We, we haven't cleaned up um, the mess created by nuclear testing, and you know, from the 1950s onwards, and yet we're setting ourselves up um, to be involved in a in a war between uh, nuclear armed superpowers. Um, yeah, so so just the the impacts would, of that would be absolutely catastrophic, and yet, um, you know, that our 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 decision makers seem to be following along with these uh, with this really dangerous shift in our foreign policy that's driven by 
you know, bureaucrats at MFAT and in defence who are completely out of step with what, what most New Zealanders would want, which is not war in the Pacific. And Adama, can you, um, you know, remind us about the, the nuclear tests that happened in the Pacific and who was behind it and those details, the history of um, nu- use or the experimentation of nuclear power in the Pacific, again, you know, even without the consent of the peoples living there. Yeah, it's such an interesting history. Eh? And I, I think, uh, you know, obviously we had really, really staunch activists um, who who tried to raise our awareness around these issues. But since kind of declaring ourselves nuclear free, I think it's really kind of fallen away from people's attention. Um, so so right back when, when nuclear technologies were being developed, um, they were hailed as just this magic technology that was going to solve all of humanity's problems. And there was such widespread support for it. Um, and then you had um, countries like the UK developing their nuclear capabilities. Um, and, and then you had leaks in facilities, the poisoning of regions. So there's still regions in the UK that are poisoned from um, the nuclear um, technology development that they did there, uh, the development of the bombs, and then they were tested really in many, many places in the world. And there are really horrific stories um, out of Australia. I visited Australia last week and we heard from uh, a daughter of one of the uh, Aboriginal people who actually viewed uh, one of the explosions and then days later lost his eyesight and their family still has the burden of of carrying that um that damage in in, in their DNA um and you know this was a, a common story in many parts of of the Pacific as well you know uh, where people were kind of displaced from where they were living because it was unsafe um Hilda Hadawida, um, we visited with her and she attended one of the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific um, meetings where she heard from people who um, who recounted just the horror of of carrying their children and then them being born and not being, you know, viable. And they had a really disturbing um, term, jelly babies, that they used to describe what was happening to people there. And so, you know, there's still so much harm um, that has never been, uh, you know, there's never been proper compensation for the people who were displaced and for the people who, whose healths and lives were put put at risk. Um, and and the same is true for um, Agent Orange um, and the effects that families are still dealing with from their involvement in in the Vietnam War. Um, recently, we heard also from you know there was some some media attention given to some of the New Zealand Navy personnel who um, were put on a ship in close proximity to some of the testing that the UK were doing in the Pacific, I think near Christmas Island. And um, yeah, one of the the veterans described, um, they were told to kind of cover their eyes and he said that he could see the bones in his fingers because it didn't stop um, the, um, yeah, it didn't stop I, I guess it's light, <laughs> I'm not sure, coming through, um, and that those families are still dealing with um, with the radiation uh, in their own families, and it, it makes them make have to make choices about whether or not to have children and just all these really, really awful consequences of war. And we have those people of that generation 
trying to remind us about the horrors of of nuclear testing and nuclear war. And yet I think the nuclear industry, uh, the nuclear lobbyists have been extremely successful because they have really shifted perception away from the dangers of nuclearism. And now we have people, you know, celebrating this movie Oppenheimer, which celebrates the the, the development of these hugely dangerous technologies. We have uh, movies like, I think it's called um, Red june or something like that a movie about like a spy who leaked the technologies to russia you know and and although you might say you know oh but these are showing the dangers of it but it's also like really glorifying the the, and and saying that you need that this this technology needs to be held by more people to keep us all safe you know and and also and probably the thing i'm most concerned about at the moment is there's just been this creep in the way that people are thinking about this and we're hearing more and more this term tactical nukes being Mm -hmm. used Instead of people thinking about like we can't have one nuclear bomb dropped because that will lead to uh, all-out full-scale nuclear war and nuclear fallout, which will you know just cost millions and millions, probably billions of lives. Um, but now we're talking about these tactical nukes as though they're something that can just be contained to the battlefield and that that'd be a really good idea. And we're so we're so on the brink of of this happening um, in major zones like. Um, Ukraine, for example, and also um, East Asia. So, so we need to really draw more attention to the the oh, and and that other thing that 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 we're seeing is is these um, small modular reactors. So that's another area where nuclear lobbyists have have been very successful. Unfortunately, is is convincing uh, people to instead of having where where it's not um, where a community is not of scale to have like a a, a full nuclear power station. They're developing these small nuclear reactors, and they're sold to indigenous communities. Actually, um, they, I mean, the they're advertised to, to indigenous communities as being, oh, with this small nuclear reactor, you can um, power your community for thirty years. Your community of five thousand, and then you'll just be left with one and a half meters of nuclear waste to deal with yourselves. You know, and and that would be absolutely catastrophic if if across um, Turtle Island we saw indigenous communities having all of this nuclear waste to deal with because that's something we just haven't figured out what to do with because the timescale of dealing with nuclear waste is in millions of years and nobody can really account for a safe plan for storing nuclear materials for that long. Um, I heard recently that the first nuclear-propelled submarine in the UK, a dreadnought, is still sitting in the harbour um, where it it, it um, is based, just rotting away, and they, they haven't figured out what to do with the nuclear waste. And I'm hoping that that's something that can actually derail the AUKUS deal, is that um, they have no plan for what they're going to do with the nuclear waste afterwards. Yeah, and it's like... France is one of the major powers that has experimented in the Pacific. And the other thing that I think it would be great for all of us to remember is the fact that, you know, um, the, uh, the Polynesian islands, uh, Pacific islands are still, um, colonized. There's, uh, c- colonial holdings for Amer- the United States, even New Zealand, the island of Tokelau. Um, and our history within, you know, the, the Pacific hasn't been great. Um, New Zealand had colonial, colonial sort of like ownership, um, at, at different times of, of Cook Islands, uh, Nui, Tokelau, and Nauru. And so, yeah, this is, 
really an issue of ongoing colonization mm-hmm. that we're seeing in the Pacific. And so we can't really say that, um, uh, that these issues are of the past. And um, it, by realigning again uh, with the Anglo-European colonial powers, New Zealand is actually uh, moving away from its commitment um, to, for example, Te Tiriti and its commitment to decolonization and the safety and sovereignty of the Pacific. Yeah, and it's, you know, we've been talking about this for a few years now on the podcast um, for for long-time listeners. Uh, You'll be very uh, familiar with our, our discussions around this, but years and years ago, we started to see this uptick in integration um, at a military and defense and security level. And this is all all post the Five Eyes release as well. So it's been accelerating um, since then. Uh, and that's, you know, purchases of military hardware, which are only going to uh, work effectively as long as they're integrated with US systems, for example. Um, it's part of why we're seeing that, that draw closer to NATO as well. The surveillance and security tech uh, that essentially relies on the other uh, partners in that space um, in Five Eyes to function effectively. Uh, none of this is Pacific focused. Like a- anyone who says otherwise is just is lying. Um, there have always been better and more moral and, and ethical ways to do that. Uh, and it's a conscious decision to uh, to align ag- against the Pacific with the colonial powers. Um, as opposed to look at Pacific Forum um, strengthening, because there 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 have there have been points at which we could have moved in the other direction, and some of the early nuclear kind of activism were were places where that happened. But it feels like yeah, lessons weren't learned and continue to not be learned and actively ignored at this point. Uh, I think something that is I, I don't really see it talked about at all, uh, but it is a a real factor, the future of armed conflict is that you know if if we are looking at a a war between superpowers, um, and what it looks like is being geared up for is it between the U.S. and China, um, in some in some respect, neither of those countries want to fight that war at home, uh, and the U.S. in particular, as as has been the case um, in, in World War Two as well, sees the Pacific as a big empty space you know like and that's that's part of what it's about um and they will justify it to themselves as being like oh the collateral's lower over here um it's it's not domestic so we don't have to worry about the electoral implications um it's as far away from us as possible and it's mostly in the ocean without you know any consideration uh given to the the people that inhabit this uh, this region, yeah, the it's, people, the environment. It's disgusting, um, but it's you know it's it's never talked about in a strategic sense that this is why this is happening. This is this is where uh, the consequences will fall. Mm. And the points you raised about like interoperability of our armed forces with those of the US and Australia um, is is a really good argument for why we shouldn't be joining AUKUS because we already have access to those partnerships you know um it's already in their interest to be sharing technologies with us so we don't need this AUKUS pact which is explicitly about containing china um Mm. in order 
for us to to be able to work alongside and share military technologies if that's what we're wanting to do um, with those countries. Um, and yet there is so much to lose. There's nothing to gain by joining Pillar 2 or AUKUS, but there's so much to lose in terms of our credibility as having a nuclear-free stance and in terms of our relationships with the Pacific, inclu- including our um, relationships with China as well. Even if you're looking from a purely um, commercial point of view, it's just really not interest in our interest to be, to be entering into an anti-China pact. Yeah, and it's only reducing the security of the region. This is the key part. Like mm-hmm. yep, we are, absolutely. we are, le- we are in an era of increased tensions. We're seeing, you know, proxy wars being fought in different parts of the world between major military powers, and we don't want that to happen in the Pacific. And this is a place where New Zealand could have taken a proactive stance of becoming, a, you know, a neutral, independent country that is actually, you know, has some brings. Some sense to this global situation saying, hey, um, our interest is peace and security. We don't want these alliances which increase tensions and increase militarization. And also, you know, at, at the end of it, we must also ask, who does this benefit? Who is profiting from, you know, 11 nuclear-powered submarines entering in the Pacific? Is it the people living in the Pacific? It's not. Is it people in Aotearoa? It's not. It Who benefits? The arms contractors, these people who are making money from creating, um, you know, these weapons, they are the ones who are profiting from this. There is a very sick industry of profiting out of human suffering. And that industry is very prominent um, in the United States. And they also help shape the United States foreign policy, I mean, what we call as the military industrial complex. I think it's very important for us to remember that US foreign policy is not determined by any democratic interests of the common people of the United States. United States foreign policy is driven by the interests of profits of lobbies. And so militarization every, you know, anywhere in the world is great news for arms contractors and their shareholders. So there is a very, you know, it's it's not just colonialism, it's also horrible, you know, capitalism which is which is so much deeply entrenched into so-called uh, liberal democratic countries with, through lobbying um political donations um through um you know uh, the engagement and and deep entrenchment of private uh, consultancies in in the bureaucracy of these Western uh, liberal democracies. So it's not in the interest of everyone. I just want to, you know, underline what are the key themes of this huge defense strategy that has come out. It is to increase defense spending, to increase militarization in New Zealand. It is to, it has identified New Zealand's partners. The biggest partner of New Zealand, which has been identified in these documents, is Australia. It has also identified United States, the European Union, as and Canada as their close partners with shared values or like-minded countries, which, you know, Arama, you just mentioned, if you look at it, if you're reading it um, with a critical perspective, it simply means the continuation of the colonial system, a colonial capitalist system, which has ravaged Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Pacific. So um, it is really ironic as well for a labor government to be releasing a, a, a hawkish um, a policy like this and doing a 
away with even a semblance of independence um, within New Zealand foreign policy. You know, there are people who critique the idea of New Zealand ever having an independent foreign policy that is always aligned with the West. Uh, but even then, you know, if you look at the nuclear free moment of the 1980s, it was the Labour Party that did that. And you can see that the United States was not happy with New Zealand taking a stand against, um, uh, you know, nuclear power. And um, United States suspended its obligations to New Zealand under the ANZUS Treaty, which was what we had before, you know, the 80s, uh, which aligned New Zealand to the United States. And then since the 80s until now, at least nominally, some people would claim that due to the activism against nuclear power, New Zealand had somewhat an independent foreign policy. Also with the Springbok tour opposing the apartheid regime, you know, which was supported by the United States and, um, and, um, the United Kingdom, for example, New Zealand took a different stance. So we are losing even the last shreds of independence um, in our foreign policy. And we get many so-called academics and experts saying things like, you know, um, being more hostile to China, removing any ties with China and aligning more and more even defensively with the United States um, is is what independence means. It, it doesn't make any sense. And if you have any, uh, you know, post-colonial or, you know, decolonial framework, it becomes very clear what this sort of uh, uh, foreign policy means. It's simply, uh, you know, continuing the tradition um, that was started uh, during the process of colonization of New Zealand um, using the British army, for example, in the 19th century there and thereafter. We're doing the same stuff globally uh, by aligning with these countries which have no... um, you know, interest in upholding the sovereignty of smaller states, of developing states in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. You don't even need to um, be in the decolonial space to to realize there's something off here, right? Like, just looking at it in a strategic sense, it's great power alignment. You know, that this that leads to vassal state status, like, and, and, well, whatever their values are. Um, that's just the nature of how power works on the international stage. It's been really interesting to see some of the responses to this, you know, you're mentioning some academics and experts uh, in this space who are, who are just kind of ignoring it. But we just, um, in the last couple of days, Helen Clark has been attacking, this, yeah. which is like pretty out there, you know, because the Labour government under Helen Clark was not like anti-US. I think she made some key decisions around not directly entering conflicts, but still very strongly aligned with Western interests. So, so to see um, someone like that come out against this, these recent decisions, these recent um, movements, they should be ringing alarm bells for, for anyone like looking at this. And does anyone remember when we became part of Five Eyes? Which year it was or which? It was back under key. Yeah. And- I don't remember exactly. I just remember it all um, unraveling. Well, not unraveling because it all just went on but when we had the big release um from snowden and key was um came into power first in new zealand uh, so that was let me think 2009 was it or early to yeah um if you think about that as well like since new zealand joined uh, 
the five eyes have has peace and prosperity in the world increased we can see united states engaging in so many more fronts of war across yeah. the world since then so uh, joining any military pact the, if you look at the history of it with the united states has not resulted in greater security in the world in fact you know the biggest as you know an unprecedented um refugee crisis for example started with the war in Syria in 2011 and thereafter and in Libya in 2011 the intervention was in 2011 so us joining uh, the these pacts has not led to um you know an increase in peace and prosperity and security neither in the region or globally we are facing the repercussions of this you know so many yeah. refugees are re- displaced uh through the the conflicts precipitated by the united states and you know this is impacting our domestic politics not only here but across the world and it's so, especially because it, you know you just have to pour money into these things to apparently make them even viable yeah so it's it's not about security it's uh, it's about no. the united states geopolitical interests and you know we should learn from our past it has it, aligning with the united states hasn't improved security and it's not going to Yeah, it's about security for a very specific um class of people. Um it's about protecting a capitalist power base and and those people's and organizations interests. And as we have a, you know, a period of uh escalating polycrises, the people that's going to be aimed at uh, are those at the sharp end of those crises because they're the ones who are, who are going to want change in the system. Yeah, and that was another really disgusting thing about these documents that were dropped day is is just the not only the brownwashing but the greenwashing of mm-hmm. of of these uh of this shift in approach um where uh we are expected to believe that if we want to be able to respond to climate emergencies we should be ramping up our militarism when we know that you know militarism is one of the most devastating um causes of environmental destruction um and so if we really wanted to um be part of the solution we would be demilitarizing yeah we need to grow more forests to offset the carbon of military hardware oh my god it's it's disgusting it's it's really sick there's going to be a crunch point at some, like at some stage just hope it happens before we have a major conflict very interestingly like um they haven't identified any asian you know african or latin american countries or even pacific countries as our partners in this document why why are we only you know partnering with these countries that profit from the exploitation of the labor and the resources continued exploitation the labor and ex- resources of asia africa latin america and the pacific we know what these countries have done concertedly through global institutions global in quotes institutions like uh, imf you know which are at the moment in argentina huge protests against imf imf is imposing you know austerity it's it's asking countries to remove subsidies for you know essential items so that these countries can pay back their you know interest to imf which is a which is an organization controlled by the united states and and europe basically and uh, how it has you know basically uh, taken away the sovereignty of uh, of poorer nations across the world um yeah it's just why is it that new zealand doesn't have um a policy that acknowledges its place its geographic location in in the pacific and you know it's it's place in the asia pacific or indo pacific if they like that term and 
build partnerships with people around here. We're talking about a multicultural. We say, you know, we are diverse country. We accept diverse cultures. Um, New Zealand has a huge Asian population. Why don't we consider um, having partnerships with some Asian countries? Why yeah. is this out? It, it doesn't uh, make sense. Japan and Singapore, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. They have included those. Uh, yeah, NATO yeah. aligned. <laughs> Go and look at history, everybody. Go and read up. So, what what are the what are the answers <laughs> to this, Adama? Please solve it for us. What can, what can we do? What can people do? Oh, what can people do? Yeah. Uh, we have a petition against AUKUS, opposing AUKUS. So you can sign that petition for a start. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We need to we need to get a get ahead of um, the media hype um, around. China being a threat, I think, uh, is one of the big ones. So, um, yeah, we want no AUKUS, no NATO, no war on China, I think are um, key key things for us to be thinking about. If you look at the justifications for the shift in strategy, um, they are trying to suggest that there are increasing geopolitical tensions. And it's like, yes, caused by the ramping up of militarism. So that's not a justification to spend more on the military. It's a it's a reason why we should be like looking more towards diplomacy rather than militarism. Um, you know, there's this uh, idea that you see in the documents about the rules-based international order, which we all know just means following what the US wants and their priorities. Um, and the idea that it's done us so well in the past you know and as like an indigenous person i'm just like fuck that like that's some bullshit and um, as a non-indigenous person i'm like fuck i'm like that. fuck that that's some bullshit <laughs> yeah 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 but yeah no it's it's really disgusting so we need i think to to expose how undemocratic these types of strategies and, and decisions are um we need uh, more people to be involved in in shaping our foreign policy um and and so that we're not just just lining up behind behind the us and following them into a war that's not in our interest yep and the us meaning the us military industrial complex i think it's so important that we know that the united states foreign policy is not something that is de democratically determined. Just as you said, Arama, about New Zealand, we need to have more people's involvement in the determining of the foreign policy. It's even less so in the most consequential country with 750 military bases across the world. Um, yeah, that their foreign policy is determined by a bunch of lobby groups, powerful lobby groups and shareholders. Um, so, yeah. This is one of the greatest um, juxtapositions of, of the whole uh set of rhetorics right is the u.s um increasing militarization has bases everywhere involved in multiple conflicts and just in the last year we've started seeing this line run out about china doing economic warfare uh through its belt and road initiative and you're like one of these things isn't like the other okay cool they might put some people in debt traps it's not really the same <laughs> You know, it's not, and not even on the economic scale compared to what the US um, has done through its other bodies, and even what the US is doing directly to China with its trade war. It's so ridiculous. Um, I'll put a link to that petition uh, that Adama mentioned in the description Great. here as well. So you can go and sign that up. I think we need to be starting to talk to unions as well um, mm -hmm. and any other kind of broad based groups that can see that the, the impact of a full-scale war on China uh, would not be in our interests. Uh, because if you look at like whatever it is that you're concerned about, if you're concerned about 
healthcare, if you're concerned about education, if you're concerned about the environment, um, if you're concerned about commerce, like it's just not good for anything. It's certainly not good for Indigenous rights. Like um, so many of the kind of urgently passed legislation that erode our rights kind of happen uh, in times of crisis and, and war would be, you know, I can just imagine how how detrimental that would be. Um, and so I think, yeah, we need to be uh, reaching out and and joining together and and having a really clear opposition to opposition to AUKUS and opposition to war uh, in the Asia Pacific region. Yeah, and it's also like just thinking about if there is a war, and you know, New Zealand being closer and closer with the United States. At some point, does this mean that New Zealand people are going to be fighting this war somewhere else? It's the working class people that are going to lose their lives in these wars. So definitely, you know, unions have a role to play. It's not the children of the rich people that are going to fight these wars on behalf of the United States military industrial complex. It's going to be the poor people here, you know? Uh, And so it's like, nah. It's just a no-no. We need to be a, a, a voice that is a voice of sensibility, of peace and independence in the region. And we have to remember we're still, although these documents are trying to convince us that that we're in, a, in an increasingly unstable world, uh, we still live in the most benign strategic environment in the world. And so there's just no need for us to be going down that path of destruction. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, both of you. Well, hey. <laughs> thank you that's been another episode of one of 200 uh if you've enjoyed it uh give it a share um head over to some of the links we've dropped in the descriptions we've got the petition link there go and sign it i've uh, got the patreon link keep an eye out as well uh we're finally getting some of our structures in place to run a pledge me campaign uh, so we're going to be asking people directly for funding so we can start doing a bit more stuff that includes ramping up some of the development of the trestle.nz uh, website, which aggregates a whole range of advocacy and activist press releases and news. Uh, hopefully looking at a bit more content as well uh, coming out of one of 200 um, and looking to start commissioning people and not relying on volunteer labor uh, to quite the extent we have for the last five years. So keep an eye out for that as well. We'll try and get to you with some midweek podcasts as well next week. Uh, but other than that, we'll be back for another current event next Saturday. We'll catch you next time. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say When they quote this as a cost we ought to stay Cause I live amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell